Hello, Jacko here. Just a quick note before we start this podcast. One of our two guests made an incorrect statement during the recording live in the studio. Uh, and so we made a Zoom call the next day to make a, a correction to that statement. You're going to hear that spliced into the interview. The, there is a drop in audio quality because it was recorded via Zoom and not in the studio. So we apologize for that, but we thought it was necessary and important to get the right information out. Okay, on with the episode. Listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. And joining me here in the studio are David Walsh and Andrew Gilholm to talk about risk mitigation and contingency planning in South Korea. But first, before we begin, please leave a review about this podcast wherever you found it and share this episode with colleagues and friends. We think this actually may be. Uh, a more useful and relevant one for a lot of people. So share it with everybody, including enemies and frenemies and people you haven't met. And what's more, like and subscribe. Secondly, check out nknews.org, uh, where you'll find lots of in-depth stories written by my colleagues. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent work that my colleagues do. Thirdly, follow us on Twitter. You can find my handle and the handle of our guests in the show notes if they have them. And at nknews.org is the general handle for the whole platform. Now, to introduce my two guests today, David Walsh is the Vice President of Operations for uh, DNA Advisory, a spin-off of Korean law firm DRNRJU, where he manages international security projects and threat management for global clients. Before that, he spent four years as the Regional Security Officer at the U.S. Embassy in Seoul where he manages the security program for the embassy. Welcome on the show, David. Thank you. Good morning and pleasure to be here. Andrew Gilholm is director, principal and director of Northeast Asia Analysis at the consultancy Control Risks. He's been working as a political risk analyst focusing on Korea and China for over 20 years, including 18 years with Control Risks, and before that with Oxford Analytica, a UK-based political risk consultancy. You can find Control Risks on Twitter at control underscore risks. Welcome on the show, Andrew. Thank you. Okay, let's start off with a little bit of a context background or a bit of history. In 1950, when North Korea conducted its full-scale invasion of South Korea with Stalin's backing and permission, the North Korean army not only arrested South Korean political leaders opposed to communist rule, but also any foreigner living in Korea. Missionaries, monks and nuns, diplomats, business people, hospital administrators, it didn't matter. Anyone who was suspected of being a foreigner was picked up and taken to a prison camp. The then British envoy extraordinary and minister of plenipotentiary Vivian Holt himself spent three years in a North Korean prisoner of war camp. About a third of the civilian prisoners died or were killed, and no government wants to see that kind of thing repeated. And after the fiasco of the rushed withdrawal uh, of the U.S. from Afghanistan in August 2021, it made some organizations wonder about what would happen in the event of an emergency here whether that be a war or something else. So let's start with a basic question. When a person gets sent to Seoul to live and work with their family for three to four years, that person might feel a little bit nervous, especially if he or she is seeing headlines in the news about North Korea testing missiles and ramping up production of nuclear weapons. So if a client asks you for a, a basic risk assessment of living in South Korea, how dangerous is it? What kind of things do you tell them? How safe or dangerous is it here? And let's start with David first. Okay. So in general, you know, Korea, Seoul, very safe place to live on a daily basis. For anyone who is looking at those kind of threats, I would say that's very good. You, you should be paying attention to those because what you find in Korea, especially among Koreans, is a very complacent attitude simply because they've been living with this type of atmosphere their whole lives. The general, if you, you speak to Koreans, they will generally feel that there is no threat and nothing will ever happen which is one of the worst things you can do and to not have any type of thought or preparation in mind. So those are things that people should be thinking about and you should be concerned about those to the standpoint that you have some type of planning, some type of thought, and hopefully your company that you're working for has those types of plans in place. Or if not, then you have those conversations to begin thinking about worst case scenarios and what to happen if something actually did happen. And, and I know we're talking about North Korea, that, that particular threat. However, 
especially being on a peninsula, you know, the evacuations or emergency planning should not only be limited to North Korea. So if you have an evacuation plan, let's say, that's not only for a North Korea threat, that's for any type of you know, political instability, natural disaster, man-made disaster, et cetera, that might happen that would pre- precipitate something like an evacuation. Okay, that's a good start there. Andrew, would you like to add something? Yeah, I mean, the tendency, I think, is you get extremes of perceptions and the the advice you get tends to depend who you're talking to. You get some people, particularly locally, as, as David said, that are a bit blasé about risks. But generally, you know, by global standards, it's a very low risk security environment in terms of, you know, crime rates. A lot of times if people are coming from, you know, major Western cities, they're usually coming to a, a place that's safer than where they were before and even factoring in the, the North Korea factor, still a low-risk environment. But as, as Dave says, there, there is some complacency with that, um, whether that's on the North Korea front or just you know being aware of people's daily environment. So we have a lot of conversations where you might have the local Korean security director of a company who thinks that you know foreigners are all crazy for worrying about North Korea risks, and you can't be too dismissive about right. that given the need for planning. Now, I remember back in the, uh, the 1990s when I first came here, uh, some foreigners would actually get a, a danger pay allowance for working in Korea. Uh, as far as you know, do foreigners sent to Korea now receive anything like a danger pay allowance? Not that uh, I know of. I'm, yeah, I'm not aware of that either. Uh, now, David, when you worked at the U.S. Embassy here in Seoul, you were involved in uh, planning a potential uh, NEO evacuation if that were to take place. A lot of our listeners will not be aware of what NEO stands for or what a NEO evacuation is. Could you explain what that is and why it's significant? Sure. So NEO stands for non-combatant emergency operation, and that's simply getting people not participating in a military conflict out of the country. So those are typical plans that the U.S. government has overseas to get citizens and allies out of a particular uh, location. And it's, it entails a lot of planning, a lot of forethought, and that's you know one of the keys to contingency planning is to have something in place when times are normal so then you can refer to it and have thought things out in a, in a kind of a clear mindset. So, you know, in Korea, you're talking, you know, a very developed country. That's, that's an asset, but also a, a densely populated country with a lot of expats and that, that poses a lot of issues if you want to try to get all those people out mm. immediately. Well, what numbers are we talking about, roughly? Uh, or, or, you know, back, the, back when you were... Uh, the, you know, the numbers fluctuate, but we estimate somewhere at least a quarter of a million Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, estimates are over a million Chinese. Um, you're talking, you know, so obviously we focus on Americans and our, and our allies, but there's, when you talk about expatriates writ large, it's a, it's a substantial number. Mm-hmm. Try to get people out in any type of conflict um, is, is very difficult to do. Mm. You know, and then you, the, geographically, we're talking about a peninsula. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are there different level triggers that would set off uh, a neo evacuation? Uh, and, and what's the, if there are different levels, what are the differences between the sorts of levels? Well, you can't, it's difficult to say just one particular thing. A lot of times it's the t- totality of the situation, but uh, usually neo-planning or evacuation planning has various terms uh, commonly called trigger points, benchmarks that when you meet them, you start reviewing your policies. And if you, you start hitting multiple trigger points or the totality of the situation dictates that you need to get out, um, you start making those types of plans. And they Depending on the situation, it can be a phased approach or, you know, up to everybody leaves. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, there's a broad spectrum of what can be done, how you do it, and the time frame. Um, it's very difficult to say when, when this happens, then you leave. Now, obviously, if, if bombs start falling, you want to get people out, but then it might be too late. Might be a bit late, yeah. Are you able to give us an idea of what any of the trigger points are that people are looking for? Yes, um, if you can just give me a moment, because I, sure. I brought some with me. Okay, and, and while you do that, there is this, the DEFCON level, right? The defense, I don't know what that stands for. Anyone know what that means, DEFCON? Def- One of my army friends will be laughing at this. Is it uh, tied, are neo-evacuations tied to an increase in a DEFCON level? No, I mean, they're not uh, tied immediately, but obviously those are things that you look at. Right. Um, and as the military threat increases, that those are the things that you're concerned about. 
So just uh, some examples, and again, speaking about military engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, one, there's information of, a, of an imminent threat, threat or attack on the Korean Peninsula, outbreak of war on the peninsula, or significant mili- military activity in the region, significant provid- provocative actions by North Korea, possibly followed by an escalation of ROK retaliatory actions, North Korea tests or deploys chemical, biological, or nuclear devices. Mm. Any type of signaling that military action is imminent, uh, mobilization of ROK reserve forces. So things like that, things like major actions that are not normal and really stand out, get you start to think about these types of situations. As far as you're aware, has a, uh, has a partial neo-evacuation ever been done as a result of seeing some of these things happening? I'm sorry, do you mean in Korea? Yeah, in Korea. Uh, not that I'm aware okay. of. No. And, uh, and also, as far as you know, how close have we ever come? To, to an EO being, uh, an EO evacuation being called? Well, during my time working at the embassy, which, as you mentioned, was the last four years, um, we never really came close. And before I got here in 2017, I can't speak to that. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was a very, you know, a lot of things were escalating and there was mm-hmm. a lot of concern, a lot of talk, and that was very much a concern and one of the main issues we were dealing with. And it never got to that point where we started to actually move people out or okay. make those plans. And, and your predecessor, when handing over the, the files to you, didn't say, well, it's a good thing you weren't here two months ago because, boy, things really got hot. No, there was, there was a little bit of that sentiment. But, uh, you know, and then uh, things started to, to simmer down a little bit in 2018. Okay. Uh, uh, Andrew, are you uh, familiar through your own work with neo-evacuations? Is that something that private companies look at as well? Not with that particular framework. Private companies tend to, you know, they have their own corporate plans, both you know, globally, regionally, and, and locally. They tend to have a, a rather different approach. It's obviously a, a, a different kind of a, both a commitment in terms of, you know, corporate duty of care to staff versus, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the responsibilities of government to their citizens and what's, you know, the kind of resources and what's feasible for a company versus, you know, the, the, the U.S. government and the resources they have. But certainly, I think 2010, 2017, to a lesser extent, maybe around 2003, we did see big surges in businesses worrying about evacuations. And in rare, isolated cases, sort of some companies having small numbers of individuals actually leaving because of those concerns, particularly in 2010. But it's a really difficult situation for, for businesses to respond to because Korea's perhaps unique in, from a, a planning perspective in that you're already almost routinely seeing the kind of things that in a, a lot of other countries would be an obvious evacuation trigger. And here it happens somewhat regularly. Right, like in, in, in 2010, which you're referring to there, there was the, uh, the, the sinking of the Chonan earlier in the year, I think in March, if I'm not mistaken, and then November, there was the, the shelling of Yonpyeong Island. Uh, and on that day, I happened to be with a, a group of uh, young South Korean diplomats uh, in training, and we were uh, getting on a bus from the uh, training center down south of, um, of the river, somewhere in Gangnam, and heading to the British Embassy that evening for a, a debate night. And the, the looks on the faces of these young diplomats in the bus as they were checking their phones and getting ready to take a bus, not southwards to Busan, but northwards into wherever North Korean shells would be falling if, you know, an attack on Seoul were imminent, uh, you know, that, they looked pretty, uh, pretty ashen-faced and, and were not at all enthusiastic about going to a debate night at the British Embassy. So I can imagine there were probably a few people who... Uh, came close to buying tickets to leaving or who did, as you say, actually leave. But then, then you've got to come back again and say to, the, to your staff, oh, I, I just went on a quick vacation. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a bit embarrassing. Yeah, it's, it's a problem, I think, for, you, you know, sometimes when companies are thinking about this, I think people imagine that it's all about coming up with, you know, the most imaginative, elaborate evacuation plan for how you get to Busan and who's got the satellite phones and, you know, can you access a boat to mm. get out? In obviously, you know, that is, that is part of it for a lot of organizations. But I, I think in reality, some of the most important things companies end up looking at are internally, what is their duty of care? Communications, you know, for expats versus, you know, what, what would locals do? What kind of support would they want or could be feasibly given 
in a crisis in the more mundane things, you know, do, do the people who are responsible for something like an evacuation plan or a business continuity plan, are they, you know, all trained and up to date on it? Does everyone know what they're supposed to be doing? And in a lot of cases, companies tend not to look at that for perhaps years, except mm. the people directly involved. And then there's a panic when somebody at headquarters sees shelling on CNN, like right. in the Yon Pyongdong case, and then suddenly it's top of the, of the worry list. Coming back to, uh, to the neo-evacuations, they are regularly uh, drilled and trained, aren't they, David? Yes, and then there's, there's, then there's some synergy with, uh, with the U.S. military here as well on those types of activities. So uh, it, uh, you said that you got to have a plan and, and you got to exercise it every once in a while. Uh, and have, you know, like I said, have it prepared in advance so you have something in place to make those types of decisions. And, you know, as Andrew's saying, you have that. It's, it's good if you have some type of framework for your decision-making process in place as well. So it's not, you know, you're not making knee-jerk reaction decisions. And, you know, the, the duty of care, and so you thought, thought, thought these things out in advance and how you're going to address them. You mentioned just then uh, synergy with the American military. And I wonder who actually is responsible for uh, evacuating in a neo situation. Is it the U.S. military? Is it the U.S. military and the ROC military working together? Will civilian authorities like the U.S. embassy have any actual role in carrying it out? It's it's joint um, because the military has the capabilities and the assets to make that that type of thing happen. But of course, the embassy has involvement as well, identifying people to make sure okay, these are American citizens, or from what country to help get them out. Um, so it's definitely a, a whole of government approach from the from the U.S. side. Mm. I remember back again in the 1990s, I received a little booklet in the mail uh, just before everything was online from the Australian Embassy uh, outlining evacuation plans for Australian citizens in the event of a restart of the Korean War. And in that booklet, Seoul was divided up into a number of wards, and each ward had its own emergency uh, warden who would apparently marshal Australians and guide them to pick up points for evacuations. And even then, it never really seemed quite realistic to me. And I treated the booklet as a bit of a joke because I believed then, and I'm still a bit skeptical now that if war starts again, it would be maybe not so likely for non-Americans to be evacuated, even though you did say, David, that allies would be evacuated too. Does that seem realistic or are non-Americans basically on their own to fend for themselves? So in a crisis uh, situation over, anywhere overseas, the primary concern of the U.S. government, of course, is the protection of U.S. citizens. Uh, the U.S. does not like to enter agreements with foreign countries that might obligate assistance in a neo situation and that might otherwise affect military operations or capabilities. The U.S. government's policy essentially states that in the event of a non-combatant evacuation operation, the U.S. government will prioritize American citizens' dependence and then we'll consider extending evacuation assistance to foreign nationals as space is available and possibly on a reimbursable basis. So while the U.S. may assist foreign nationals in an evacuation, non-U.S. citizens should consult with their respective governments in advance to learn about possible assistance with neo-evacuation planning. Okay. All right. So it, it sounds like uh, basically we are um, foreign nationals, uh, not American citizens. Uh, a lower order of priority, which is understandable, given that you know any country's first duty of care is to its own citizens. So, but on a uh, humanitarian space available and possibly reimbursable basis, we may, uh, we non-Americans may also be uh, evacuated uh, in the event of, of some sort of crisis. But the best thing is to probably try and have your own work out your own plan first before that happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. And most, um, you know, most foreign governments are going to be working on those same issues as well. Mm -hmm. So there's there's definitely some synergy there between governments and trying to assist each other in any type of neo situation. Andrew, in the private sector, do you say you know um, trust the American government and and follow their advice, or do you say make sure you have your own plans and and work it out yourself, or somewhere in between, or a mixture of both? Well, it's it's mainly the latter. Um, obviously, for American citizens at companies, obviously they need to I think be very familiar with what the U.S. government plans are for companies i think you know as dave touched on and you mentioned you know the the realism of actually getting out mm. in a, a real conflict or crisis i mean we all know it's pretty difficult to get out of seoul on a friday night or <laughs> get to busan for you know Chuseok, Chuseok, let alone yeah. let alone in a conflict or you know getting to the getting to the airport when it would you know likely be 
be under government or military control mm. anyway. So a lot of the focus is on, as I say, knowing what the sort of you know shelter in place or domestic uh, fallback options are, not just the elaborate evacuation plans. So companies tend to focus on on that mm. and what they can you know realistically manage. And also, it's not just about the evacuation; it's also about you know the business continuity side. And I, I will come to the continuity a bit later on. Yes, and. I- that's a good point because, you know, I think we're talking about evacuation, NEOs, th- that's like your last action that you're going to take or you, uh, right. the worst thing you want to have to do. So it's all, there's many things leading up to that, that hopefully, you know, that's, uh, you have other options there besides just getting people out of the country. It's true. It, and it is, as you say, one of the last things you want to do. And, and, and I suppose one of the reasons for that, I've often heard it said that uh, a neo evacuation or signs of preparing for an imminent neo evacuation would be the indication that the US is either about to strike North Korea preemptively or that it expects North Korea to strike Seoul. So an evacuation is really a, a de facto declaration that war is about to break out. Now, does that assessment seem justified? And if so, does that mean that North Korea would itself also be looking for signs of an evacuation as to a sign of what's to come? Yeah, those are definite scenarios, and you know we're talking worst case scenario if it could be a mass exodus. So you don't want to do that uh, unnecessarily. And I, I think like this, like, you know, for you recent events, if you look at Ukraine, I don't think in this um, arena you're going to see the same type of hey, you, you, we're giving you some advance warning. Go ahead and get out of country so you can avoid this. That's that's an unlikely scenario mm. to happen. I think on, on the Korean Peninsula, where unannounced first preemptive attack is you know gives you the advantage. Is there any possibility that a a drill or an exercise in practicing an evacuation could be mistaken for the real thing by North Korea, leading to a tragic and horrible miscalculation? Oh, certainly. And the, so there there is a lot of thought put into that to not send those types of signals. So um, those are done very carefully. Tend to not send the, uh, the wrong message. And would that include, for example, pre-announcing it in the media or something like that? Yes. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure that those are typically announced in the media. Ah. But you know, that's those are different than your your annual exercises between the the U.S. and the Iraq militaries. Just staying on the idea of an evacuation for a moment. There are under wartime conditions. Won't airspace and sea space be basically tightly locked down and under some type of military control, and and therefore it would be hard to evacuate. Absolutely. And that's, that's part of the problem is about uh, getting out. Um, the, the, all that will be controlled, um, as well as uh, most likely some type of martial law by mm-hmm. the Korean government, <clears throat> which might restrict movement of people in, within Korea. Andrew, in your advice that you give at controlled risks, is there a point at which you would say to people, okay, at this point, it's probably no longer worth going to the airport because you're not going to get a, fl- a commercial flight out? Yes. And, and the, the difficulty is that that could be such a, you know, hard to define in advance and a very sharp turning point. So ultimately, you know, however detailed and, you know, analytical you get about mapping out specific triggers, Mm. when we're in a situation like Korea where you see things happening all the time that could be interpreted as alarming, it really comes down to how companies choose to calibrate triggers. And I'm being a little bit crude here, but most of the time you kind of got to make a choice are we going to calibrate triggers cautiously in order that we do activate plans you know while it's still possible to do something while it might still be possible to get out for those who who want to and the problem with that is in a situation you would probably have let's say in 2010 and 2017 you would have evacuated people Mm -hmm. and then you know, used quite a lot of resources had a lot of business disruption maybe looked a bit silly to some people for doing what you know afterwards looks like an unnecessary evacuation if you calibrate your triggers less cautiously and you wait for very clear certain indications that conflict is imminent or starting then it's probably too late to to do anything in terms of evacuation out of the the country so i think you know most organizations they need to be realistic about that and have those sort of conversations in advance rather than in the moment. And as Dave said, had a framework for that decision-making. Mm. So instead of just reacting to alarming headlines, you do have some some triggers for, you know, at what point do we take what action? I once spoke to an American civilian who was here teaching English, whose father had been a general uh, in the U.S. Army. And when he heard that his son was coming to Korea to teach, he told him, have a bag with $10,000 U.S. cash and a passport and a bicycle 
so that if any trouble starts, she can pedal down to Pusan and buy her way to Japan on a fishing boat with the US dollars. 21 years in Korea, I still have no go bag. Um, I, I know where my passport is, but it's not next to the door. I do not have a bicycle or 10,000 US dollars cash uh, on hand. Am I being reckless? What kind of plans do you give for a go bag? Start with David. Yes, you're absolutely being reckless. <laughs> uh, so go bag, you know, I, it is a good idea to have one. But Do you but have I, one? Yes. What's in yours? Uh, mostly just clo- clothing, change of clothes, um, a few items to eat, uh, food, and some toiletries. No 10 grand of cash? Not the cash. Okay. Um, passport? <clears throat> passport, yeah. But again, you know, we're talking worst case scenario again with the go bag. Sure. That's if you have no time to put something together. Absolutely, yeah. You know, hopefully if things are escalating, then you then maybe it's time to start putting type of assembling those things so you are ready. But in a, that's some, something, again, if you have very little time and you have something you just got to grab and go. But yeah, just the essentials that you need to have in there. Um, like I said, and then maybe some important documents, any type of insurance, things like that. Uh, maybe things if you have children, you know, one, they should have their own mm. go bag, but then any, any of their school belongings or anything like that. But the, I guess the important point is you're not taking things that, you, that are unnecessary. You're taking things oh. to survive, to, that you can carry lightly, and assuming that you have the limited amount of weight that you can take on any type of vessel to get out of the country. But just to get to the coast or to an airport, are you going to take? Do you have bicycles ready, or are you planning to drive? Uh, well, the transportation is is absolutely going to be an issue. <laughs> yeah, um, and this is would be very tied up. Bicycle, um, I suppose that's that's one option. But any conveyance that you can get to get to wherever the airport, seacoast, whatever, yeah. That's, that's one of the challenges for sure. Andrew, what's your go bag situation? Well, to be honest, I'd never had one until actually it was it was 2010 with the Yongpyongdo that made me take it a bit more seriously. Although obviously working for Contrarius and in my job, I should take it seriously. All um, the time, yeah. But I'm so mercilessly mocked by my Korean wife for taking these things seriously that it um, I feel a bit silly having one. But, you know, same same as Dave, it's... It's really the the minimum essentials. It's not elaborate, and it tends to be not that different to you know the the bag that I have sort of semi permanently packed for 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 work travel. Anyway, mm-hmm. I confess I don't have a bicycle standing by. Um, the idea of cycling to Gyeongpo or Incheon for a sudden getaway seems a little. I'm not sure my fitness is is up to that. So I, I don't think that's. Uh, where people probably want to focus most of their attention, as I say, I think the more useful thing is probably knowing what you, in addition to the evacuation options, mm-hmm. knowing you know all the all the typical stuff that is even part of you know civil civil readiness training. That you know knowing where your nearest shelter is, knowing who you can contact, and if you do have to shelter in place, knowing that you do have the the supplies. Some of the things that for a very brief moment at the start of COVID in of Korea's outbreak, I think some people were even worrying about, you know, do we have water in the house? It's hard to remember. It seems silly now, mm-hmm. but um, in the initial stages, those kind of things were a reminder of how suddenly uh, those kind of preparations go from seeming a bit silly to, to feeling very necessary. And what about a, a fat stack of cash or some gold bullion in your go bag? No. I'm I find it interesting that neither of you have that because how are you going to buy your way onto a fishing boat or an airplane in a, in a chaotic situation like that without something that is not Korean money you know, or, or a credit card that probably won't work at that point? I, I don't know about you, David. I, buying my way onto a fishing boat is not one of the first options I would be uh, thinking of. So I, for, I'm not sure if I need to go into the reasons for that, but I think that's fairly low down the list of options. Hmm. It's probably also a lot, as you know, Korea is not a very cash using society these days so uh, I, I guess it is probably still best practice in a lot of places including Korea but I, I don't think it's uh, top of the list from my perspective okay any comment from you David yeah just similar similar to Andrew but then you know one of the things that you have to question I mean if we're talking about a crisis situation that crisis affects everyone and <clears throat> so things like um, am I going to hop on a bus or a train? Well, are there going to be bus drivers or train drivers or, or fishing boat captains who are actually working, or are they going to go home and take care of their families? So we're, we're talking about a, a situation that, that affects everybody, and so are those services even going to be available mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a big question. 
Okay, uh, so let's talk about uh, sheltering in place. Uh, when is that an option in- instead of evacuating? So let's move on from evacuation there. Sort of, uh, yeah, when, when should people seek shelter in or around their home? It might be the only choice you have based, based on how a scenario plays out. So if there's an imminent type of attack, let's say, the chances are you're not going to be able to go anywhere. Mm. And you, sheltering in place is, is the best option. Or seeking a shelter, or if, if you know, that might be what the government is, uh, is putting out that is the best solution. And the other question is, where will you go? Well, if, yeah. you, if you cannot get out of Korea, where is the safest place to go? So is the, um, uh, the basement of an apartment normally good enough? Or do you need somewhere deeper? I mean, it, should you be a certain number of levels below ground to, to think that you're doing okay? Well, there are, there are many shelters, you know, that the Korean government has built. Often they're just a subway station yes, or, exactly. or the basement of a building nearby, a large and public building. They are labeled with mm. uh, shelter signs. So getting it, you know, the basement of a, of a large building may not be the best because if that building collapses and you're in the bottom. So I would, but again, um, it's, it's the situation, what is... Do you need to get out to a shelter or sheltering in place is the best? And then waiting, sheltering in place and then waiting to see what happens and develops and looking at your options. Yeah, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I think evacuation is normally something that we think about is, is largely a precautionary rather than reactive mm. thing. Precautionary is maybe not quite the right word, but it would be in a scenario where, you know, the organization at a certain or, or a, a government advice um, at a certain point says, we think there is a high imminent risk of, of conflict or, or some other scenario and you choose to evacuate while it's still possible. Um, as Dave says, you know, in the scenario where, you know, the, the siren goes off or there's something happens suddenly, your reaction to that is not, okay, where, you know, call, call a taxi. Where do we, where do we get the, yeah. the meeting point for going to the airport? It is shelter in place and we we all have seen how not very seriously often the the drills for that are taken right they used to be on the what 15th of every month yeah and you know they still they still happen Mm. but in most places in korea where i've been when you know the announcement and the the alarm has has gone off it's quite rare to see anybody paying any attention unless it, you know companies might enforce it in a right. in a workplace but it, it, it's often not taken very seriously so do you have a, a list of uh, sort of places that or sort of checkpoints of what kind of a place people should be looking for we do and i think in a lot of cases the the process you would go through for some aspects of this planning is not that different for what it would be for a, you know a natural disaster or something like that but obviously in terms of if you're seriously, I mean, some companies really want to do this very seriously, and they might even be looking for mm. locations that are, I mean, th- these conversations are normally more about business continuity, backup locations. But some people, particularly if they have, you know, a, a background in doing this, will want to get very serious about it and have a place that is particularly well suited to shelter in place scenario. But then, I mean, getting one of those in, in Seoul is not feasible in a lot of cases getting to one Mm. if it's elsewhere is another challenge so uh, as as dave says a lot of the time it's you know just knowing what the best uh, you know realistically immediately available option is and it's not going to be perfect Mm. well and now having watched a few uh, apocalyptic disaster movies and and zombie movies myself i've I've learned that uh, if you're sheltering in a place where there are lots of other people and if you have a good supply of food and water, you instantly become a target for theft, for attacks and that sort of thing. Uh, any advice on, uh, on that? Not on zombies, obviously, but on uh, maybe avoiding a place where there are too many other people and not showing that you have uh, uh, lots of food and water for yourself. Well, you know, if you're talking about a shelter to get away, f- you know, to get safety from like an attack, that's, that's one thing. And, and perhaps a limited time. But if you're talking about sheltering in place during a, a conflict to, to just to see how things develop and then what options become available, that's different. And that might be, just be sheltering at home or sheltering at the office um, around, you know, obviously around people that you're, you know. So there's, there's different levels to that. Certainly, if everybody's sheltering in place, then your options are going to be limited automatically because everybody can't go to the same location. But yeah, I mean, those types of scenarios, 
you know, when people are going to be looking for resources. Yeah. And that's again, just another important reason to have some of those um, established already prepared if you need them. Do you have any thoughts on that, Andrew? Yeah, not, not a lot to add really, because I don't think there's a, a whole lot you can do about that. If you're, you know, in, in somewhere, which is, you know, your, your own home or, or office, you have control over that in a scenario where you're having to go to something like a subway shelter Mm. you know we would like to think that in korea that situation would be somewhat you know as as orderly as it could be under those kind of circumstances um but there's there's not a lot a lot you can do about that kind of scenario particularly if it was you know a a long a long lasting one Um, but we've seen that kind of situation in other places and to some extent at least in the short term you know, you would, you would like to think it would be fairly cooperative to some degree. So let's talk about what practical considerations companies should take to protect business continuity, a phrase that we've heard a few times already, in the event of either a, a natural disaster or a war uh, that necessitates either a sheltering in place or an evacuation. What, what things need to be secured or, uh, or hidden or perhaps even destroyed in such circumstances? So you need to, uh, of course, you need to have supplies. So again, pre-planning, if you've secured food and water, um, office supplies, um, any type of facilities for sleeping, things like that, then you have those in place and, you know, you can, you can employ those. Keeping the offices going, you know, that could be uh, problematic if there's, you know, utilities are lost Mm -hmm. in any type of situation. So perhaps emergency generators, having backup water supplies, and um, again, keeping you know keeping a supply of emergency goods is is definitely something that people should be looking at. Companies should be looking at to keep their operations full. But then you, you mentioned information. Mm. That's a whole different um, scenario because if you, you know, if you're going to maintain your operations, then it's not such an issue. But if you decide to close your offices, you have to look at destroying information or right. taking it with you. And yeah, that that's something I, I remember hearing years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong. You've worked at the U.S. Embassy. As, as I understand it, there is a group of Marines who are tasked with destroying and shredding documents at the embassy if, if something goes down. Uh, is that an accurate uh, portrayal? That's, they, they have responsibilities for that, but then I would argue that all the employees at the embassy have responsibilities for that right. and that that's a, a shared responsibility for maintaining information. But, and I would say the same thing for any business, that it's not just one particular person or office's responsibility to mm-hmm. be everybody's and there should be a plan in place to how you're going to handle information yep. in that type of scenario. Should, would there be a, sort of a, a list of priority uh, things that should be destroyed first and you know, sort of go down the list? Yeah, if, if you've prioritized what's most important or what's most sensitive that you don't want someone else to have access to, then you should be looking at that. And then you've got, um, okay, Destroying paper is one thing. That's that's fairly easy. But if you're talking about electronic equipment, then it becomes more difficult. And, yeah, and uh, again... But even papers get... I mean, if you know, shredders only work so fast and mm-hmm. they have a tendency to jam up if you shove more than four sheets of paper through at one time, especially if there's a staple through them. Uh, so even you know, paper destruction can be quite troublesome. You know, we, We've heard... Over the decade, I mean, the, the East Germans tried to tear it up by hand, and then they got people taping, taping them together later on, and other countries where they try to burn them, but the paper can only burn so fast, and some of the stuff in the middle doesn't get burnt. So even that can be a real to- a chore. Sure. And, you know, that they're getting into more of your typical day-to-day business operations and how much paper holdings you do have. Right. You know, these days, I, I don't know. I think, you know, everything is, is cited more towards electronic but again, that's that's why all this these things need to be thought of in advance. How much time that's going to take to get rid of paper holdings? And Andrew, uh, w- what advice do you have on things that should be either destroyed or hidden? Well, in, in our sort of business continuity planning conversations, that's usually a fairly s- small part of it. So mm. most companies will have these days pretty um, well established information security and you know document control policies for a lot of reasons of which a crisis is, you know, relatively low down the list, at least in terms of likelihood. And again, you know, a lot of that is electronic. So if it's that sensitive, there's got to be a pretty good reason that it's in, you know, on paper in the, in the first place. So that there would be that aspect of it. The other things people are typically looking at is, you know, can you, you know, the basics, can you still run an office and all the things that we got a, a test run of uh, through the pandemic? 
uh, you know, can people continue to work from somewhere? If so, were and that all goes out of the window very quickly if it's you know a, a, a real conflict scenario. But then you know lesser scenarios you might still have issues with you know concerns about coming to a workplace, loss of critical infrastructure, you know power disruption, whether that's from a typhoon or sabotage or whatever. There's a lot of those things which might. You know, if you've got manufacturing capacity here, that's a different kind of mm. issue for uh, compared to an office. Um, and then we've got also the, you know, beyond Korea, Korea is an important part of the global regional supply chain, obviously. So then we've got all the issues about, you know, at what point do you maybe increase inventories or increase production at other locations in anticipation of or in response to loss of capacity in, in Korea. So the there's a whole gamut from things related to, you know, to, to people and communications and, and training and policies through to things more like supply chain and operations for, for manufacturers or, or people sourcing from Korea. Some practical questions. If you're a, a company that only is, let's say, a floor or a room in a large building rather than having the whole building to yourself, are there small enough electricity generators available just for a single floor of a building that a company can have to itself? Are, they, are such things available on the market? In our experience, uh, typically no. If you're you know, just in, a, in an office like this, you wouldn't be able to, to right. realistically get independent power supply. That, that is an option, as you say, if you own your own building yep. or it, it's something typically people will think about more if they're a manufacturing location or you know operating infrastructure they might have independent power supply for an office typically if the you know if the if the grid's out then you're right you may have no idea about this but i'm just thinking here uh, when uh, a construction company builds a brand new office building or a developer makes a brand new office building is that one of the things that they may choose to offer you know we have uh, a, a generator just in case something happens and the grid goes down is, is that something you've heard of I, I haven't, no, not in terms of offering it as a, you know, crisis resilience benefit of a, of a building. Mm. I, I think there certainly are buildings where they are, there are provisions for that. So, you know, I, I, I guess there are maybe mm -hmm. some cases like that, but we, we haven't come across, for example, companies who will, you know, move to another location because they've got better backup supply. Because for a typical right. office building, it's not very realistic um to be able to mm. you know keep electricity going when the grid's down it's not not really feasible for most kinds of buildings right hospitals i guess is a, is a different story i suppose but uh, yeah that's a bit of an exception and in terms of uh, like wiping data storage devices are there uh, commercially available like a basically a, a, a super strong magnet box that you just drop everything in and, and flick the switch and everything gets uh, erased is that how it works or is it much more tedious than that I'm I'm not familiar with those, but a lot of times it can just be destroying that equipment, which again, that's, that can be a drastic measure. But if right. you are packing up and you cannot take everything with you, uh, destroying the hard drive is is one option. And then you've got to hope that you have a backup somewhere so that when you do come back, you you can have a business continuity. Otherwise, exactly. you're starting from scratch. Right? Exactly right. Right. So that that it's quite drastic. Without uh, giving away sensitive details or client names, can either of you share uh, uh, whether you've seen plans that uh, for emergencies that clients have drawn up before talking with you that didn't pass the reality test that looked quite unfeasible? Um, we've seen a few, yeah. What kinds of unfeasible things were, uh, were in those plans? Well, the, the typical issue that we see, I mean, some companies are very good at this, I should say, and, you know, very realistic about it. But in, in the cases where, you know, we pointed out room for improvement, it's usually... I mean, I, either just a lack of plans at all mm -hmm. um, or the use of a generic plan that might be based off a sort of a template that is used for the same. It looks almost the same as it would for, for example, the policy for responding to a natural disaster in Southeast Asia or something. And is, you, you know, you look through it and a lot of things just don't make sense in the Korean context. The other typical problematic scenario is what I mentioned earlier, where people get a bit carried away with the elaborate evacuation options and they might have three different routes drawn out for you know how they're gonna the, the sort of let's get let's bribe our way onto a fishing boat from right. pohang sort of uh scenario and have paid far too little attention 
to the, the basics of are people trained? Do you have a, you know, a designated team, people responsible for owning the plan? Does everyone know what their role is? Would they be able to communicate with each other? Do people know the shelter in place options and the, in, the more, the things that are likely to be uh, more, more feasible in a crisis? Those are the two uh, ways that people tend to, to err if they do err. Uh, David, can you add anything to that? Very similar to what Andrew said. It's either outdated plans mm. that haven't kept up with how Korea has modernized and expanded and the infrastructure has become more, or just not understanding the scenario and how things likely might play out and the fact that you, know, you might not be able to get out and what are you going to do? It's not simply, if it was as simple as uh, booking a ticket, going to Incheon Airport and flying out, then you, you really don't need much of a plan. But all the other things involved in that, and if people don't necessarily always take into account all the, the variables in this in a potential situation that could happen in Korea, so maybe just you know maybe not a thorough enough plan or enough options if if option A doesn't work is is what I've seen. Now I understand that sometimes in in planning for emergencies, uh, the, members of an organization are divided into critical and and non critical employees. Can either of you tell me what? What that means and, and how the roles are divided and, and whether they go to different places or do different things? Sure. So it's, it's basically, from my perspective, it's you, you're, you're not um, saying who's more important to an organization. You're stating who do we need here for business continuity operations? If we're going to send people home, who can we send home that we, can, that we don't need here to keep business operations running or to maintain some type of security or contingency planning. So uh, a lot of people want to be the ones who stay because they want to feel more important, but it's not about who's more important to the organization. You can be more important to the organization. That's why we need you to leave mm. because we need you to go to another place to keep up these, these operations. But it's who needs to be here in country to keep things physically going or to um, continue operations. And that could be a tough call to make, mm -hmm. right? Tough decisions. Yeah. And, and uh, again, ideally those are planned in advance. So it's, it's stated, people know it, they're ah. not, you're not making those decisions on the fly. And then personalities, egos come into play, which is, which is not a good thing if you're mm. dealing with a crisis. No, no. Yeah, exactly. Andrew? Yeah. A lot of times I think the, you know, who's critical comes down to quite, you know, operational, practical functions, right? It could be engineers or, you know, people maintaining a facility skeleton staffing what you need to keep keep going if you can keep going and again the the evacuation conversation is just one bit of of planning for yep. for crises because most multinationals here there's obviously many exceptions but most they don't have many foreign nationals working for them the workforce is typically very heavily local nationals most of whom you know find it quite silly when we're talking about ev evacuation because that would be either not viable or not desirable for them and often you know companies obviously want to and, and should avoid any perception that the company is planning to you know get the expats out and and, and isn't looking after the the locals so often that's a big part of the conversation as well who can get out who wants to get out who is critical for running operations it, kind of all has to be part of the same consideration. Now, once a company or an organization has a detailed plan, the next step is to make sure that everyone knows about it and, and knows how to follow it. How do you get all the members of an organization to be familiar with the details of a plan and, and, and how much does everyone have to know? Uh, and how do you get people to take it seriously in case things do actually come to pass? Do you want to start that one, David? Sure. Um, I, well, that starts with your, with your leadership. And if they tell the employees that this is your responsibility to read this, to understand it, and your your responsibility to actually make it better. If you have ideas or there's things in here you don't see or you see that are issues, you know, please tell us. And that be makes it ownership for everyone. But And then also just to have it available. So it's not something that's just pulled out and only a few people have it when you need it. Um, it's there for a resource. Anybody can look at it whenever they want to. But it is important that that starts with the top and that they make this a priority and they show that it's important and that shows the, the whole staff that this is something that, that needs to be taken seriously. Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. I think that tone from the top that people need to 
be familiar with that is is important and also i think somehow bridging the the gap between making sure that it's, it's not um just seen as something imposed from the region or from he- headquarters mm. that it's also something that local leadership and employees take seriously and that's often best done by you know having some overlap between training and planning for all kinds of crises so that it's people don't see it as just you know the the foreigners worrying about north korea but it's also it covers a, a range of other scenarios so above all making sure that the people who actually have a, a role you know the people who own the plan the people who have roles in the crisis response team or or in a, an evacuation plan are, are very familiar with it and you know it's not that different from the way you would plan for you know familiar familiarizing staff and drilling anything you know almost like companies do with fire drills or something everyone knows who's the designated people responsible people know what to do people practice it you obviously don't want to be doing things that often for a a much more Mm. complex thing like this but it's really just people knowing their roles and responsibilities and making sure that if any key people leave i mean sometimes see cases where you know there's there's a, a crisis and somebody says we've we've got a plan um, the owner is so and so, and but they've left the company. The new new person wasn't around for the last training, mm. so just mundane things like that. Right. So, how I mean, is it is annual training enough? Generally speaking, at least annual training. At least annual yeah, training. Yeah. Right. Uh, but because I mean, we already we mentioned before that there's a lot of complacency among pe- even just uh, among foreigners who live in Korea for a long time. I've been here 21 years, and I, I got to say I'm pretty complacent because I see them as being. I see the risk of a war with North Korea as being a low probability, high risk uh, out, you know, event. That it's okay until it isn't, and and when it isn't, it's too late. Exactly. Yeah. I mean that that's the the thing that makes planning in Korea so difficult. It's on you know on the impact likelihood matrix. Yeah. As you say, it's the classic example of very low likelihood, potentially extreme impact. So it's very difficult for organizations to to decide, you know, how much do you in, invest in something that is, you know, potentially so severe, but also so unlikely. And generally, I think that the natural tendency is that in normal times, which is most of the time, there's little impetus to really invest very heavily in it. Um, you don't want to panic people. People aren't too keen on doing it most of the time. But when, you know, when, when the stream of headlines and escalation starts, suddenly people do want to invest in it. Yeah, yeah. You, you mind if I just share something? Because I always think about this. Before uh, Russia uh, attacked Ukraine, mm. and they signaled that they were going to do that, and I was watching uh, a report on TV. They found Americans living in Ukraine, and they went and interviewed them and asked if they were going to evacuate. And so many people that they interviewed like yeah, everything's normal here. That the locals aren't leaving. They're not doing anything different. I'm not going anywhere. Right. And and look what happened. And this was when it was telegraphed. It was actually going to happen. Yeah. And so that that just is a, is a good example of people not taking uh, seriously, not making this decision that hey, it's we got to go. And then worst case scenario, you, now you have to do something mm. when it's too late. Yeah. It's often said that North Korea has tens of thousands of artillery tubes trained on Seoul in case of war. Uh, And now, of course, it also has these short-range and and intermediate-range missiles. Are there any places that you advise your clients not to put their offices in Seoul, uh, places where the bulk of those artillery shells and missiles might be firing towards, like Yongsan, for example? General advice is to stay away from government, uh, government offices, military installations, or in any type of infrastructure that's that's critical. Mm. So if you keep those, you know that that's that's just a good um, rule of thumb. We've we've already gone wrong. We're very close to Kwang Kwang here. <laughs> it's difficult to do um, in Seoul, but yeah, th- those are just the general uh, potential targets that people would be concerned about. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know many organizations who actually make their real estate decisions based on that because mm. it's so so difficult to do you know outside of the really obvious ones you know being yeah next to critical infrastructure government or military facilities you know we've all seen the the range maps pretty much anywhere is potentially you know under 
threat. So I don't think there's a, a great deal you can do outside of you know avoiding those most obvious highest risk places. Uh, well, to begin to wrap up here, what is the, the single most important thing that a company or an embassy or an organization needs to have as their, their foundational principle when making a plan for emergency contingencies? We normally did one of the sort of guides for crisis management planning generally is the, the three R's of you know, readiness, response, and, and recovery. And I think here, readiness is, is key. And I would add a, an ad hoc fourth one, which is the realism that we've talked about, you know, focus plenty of, of time and resources on the things that are actually likely to be useful if things do happen. And I think it's critical to whatever your plans are, that the key people are familiar with them and that can actually execute them. And uh, also, it's one thing to have the plan of what you do, you know, when you activate that plan, but the decision for whether and when to activate it Mm. is very difficult. So there's clearly some broad guidelines you can have for what that trigger is, but the more you can get into specifics, the, the better so that you're not just basing it on a sort of, you know, an emergency conversation. Here's what's in the news. You know, do we activate or not? Yeah. You've got a framework and some criteria to refer to. And as I said earlier, that is not the time to be having the conversation about do we want to lean cautious or do we have a, a stronger risk appetite? All those elephants in the room conversations and internal communications need to happen in advance. So decide your risk appetite really early would be important. And give, yeah. give us those four hours again. Readiness, response, and recovery. Yeah, and the w- fourth one being uh, realism. Realism, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's a good, good start. Uh, David? Yeah, just to add on to that, I would uh, say just understand that you know at some point you can have these great plans in place. You can exercise them. You can have your staff, um, employees ready. At some point you have to make hard decisions about what to do, whether that's to do nothing or to evacuate personnel and possibly shut down facilities Mm. but because no plan is going to have that answer in there you're going to have to make those decisions and so those are things you know what is your threshold what is what is it going to take to decide to send people out of country and at what point okay and is there anything that you'd like to add any uh, important point that we've missed in this conversation today anything that people should bear in mind well i think you know one of the things just having this conversation is you can see that there's a lot of facets to mm. it. It's not simply like, okay, we're going to get out of country or we're going to go to the airport. A lot of d- potential scenarios. So it's just things, you know, to be thinking about and to have, like we, we've, we've repeated it many times, but to have a plan yeah. and to be thinking about these things far in advance so that you do have some framework in mind that you can follow and then make these hard decisions when it actually comes down to that point. Okay. Andrew? Yeah, I I guess I'd just add that this is part of, I think, a overdue and necessary wider increase in recognition of, you know, geopolitical risk. And these also these kind of, you know, resilience preparedness conversations that in the context of, you know, the, the Ukraine situation has suddenly moved up, I think, the, mm. the, the radar for a, a lot of companies particularly in this region, obviously Taiwan's been getting a lot of attention. So I think to some extent, those conversations need to happen higher up in companies and be sort of a bit more comprehensive, not just about a specific, you know, what does the sole office do, but to to have uh, a more coordinated approach to that. Mm. And also just for people to take the situation here seriously and and look at it fairly regularly, because the tendency is to ignore it and then panic um, and particularly now when there's so much focus on Taiwan um, people tend to forget that you know if you're putting money on it I think there's just as likely to be a, an escalation crisis in Korea in 2023 as there is in, in Taiwan for example um, so it needs to be on the regional and, and global radar. Okay well let's hope that everyone gets a plan but that we don't actually have to use it. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show today, David Walsh of DNA Advisory and Andrew Gilholm from Control Risks. Thank you. thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of our podcast today. If you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. 
You can inquire about access by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thank you very much for listening again next time. <laughs> <laughs>